0: Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.
1: Welcome to our number one of this edition of the Word Podcast. My name is John Ziegler and this is your two-hour weekly oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit, which is the American media, cultural, and political landscape. Thanks for joining us. I hope you caught our first podcast ever, which we began at the start of 2017 as we transformed what was formerly a nationally syndicated Sunday night radio talk show into a weekly podcast, which comes out on Sundays, although a little bit earlier than the live radio show did. If you didn't catch that, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and you can listen to two full hours. In fact, we actually went over two full hours of uh, podcasting last week, which featured a very interesting and I think enlightening interview with NFL legend Franco Harris in our number two We'll try to do an interview, although I'm not going to promise an interview every single week, but we'll try to do an interview as often as we can. One of the reasons why I love the podcast format in comparison to the old radio show is the old radio show was basically a slave to the clock, which meant we couldn't do more than basically 9, 10, 11, maybe 12-minute segments if you we were lucky, and you had to really manipulate things just to get that much time, and then you had two long commercial breaks, and a short segment in between. So there was no continuity, and it's very difficult, especially on a, late on Sunday night, to get good guests. And then even if you get them, you get to basically talk to them for five or six minutes, and then you got to stop. And it's just awkward. It just doesn't work. But, for instance, with Franco Harris, he gave us 40 minutes, no commercials, and it's there in hour number two of last week's podcast. In this week's podcast, we're expected to be joined in hour number two by a guy I actually referenced last week, who's a very high-profile attorney named Lynn Wood. He has been involved in many very notorious cases where the news media blew it, which is really my forte, including the entire Jean-Benet Ramsey case. He is the family for the Ramsey attorney, and he just sued CBS and one of my many nemesises, if that's a word. Is that the correct word? I'm not even sure, but... I don't know, but I think you get where I'm coming from. One of the guys I really don't like of many in the news media named Jim Clemente, who is part of that $750 million lawsuit you may have heard of, where uh, Burke Ramsey, the son of John and Patsy Ramsey, the brother of Bonet Ramsey, who was murdered 20 years ago last week, that's a lawsuit against CBS and a couple of other entities, including Jim Clemente, who I have encountered uh, far too extensively on the so-called Penn State scandal. I do not like him and I'm thrilled that he's part of that lawsuit and Lynn's going to talk to us about that lawsuit and some other things that I think you'll find interesting. That'll be in hour number 2 of the podcast. Uh, as I will normally do in this podcast, I mean this this podcast is going to be a lot more diverse with regard to topics than the old radio show was. And for those of you who aren't quite sure why the radio show went away, I did write an extensive column, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com for Mediate, which goes into great detail on that. By the way, also at freespeechbroadcasting.com is an interview that I did with Vox, the liberal website, a fairly extensive interview. They, They didn't exactly publish it word for word. They definitely edited out some context, some fairly important context, which I'll probably talk about later on today. But you can check that out about the end of the radio show. It's also about the conservative media and how Donald Trump's election impacted the decision to turn the old radio show into a podcast. But, of course, the simplest way to explain this was best said by my four-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Grace, when she appeared on the last edition of the program. And she said...
0: It's costing money!
1: Right. So, Grace, as usual... Out of the mouths of babes comes great wisdom. That pretty much narrows it down. And speaking of how the podcast is different, we're not just going to talk politics and news, which was mostly, especially during the presidential campaign, what the old radio show was about. The podcast gives me the ability to talk about virtually anything I find interesting, including a lot more stories and a lot more stuff dealing uh, with uh, personal life and things that, frankly, many people find more interesting than the news of the day, since I no longer have to worry about placating a radio audience that isn't necessarily tuning in just for my show. People that are listening to the podcast clearly are tuning in just for my show. So basically, I no longer have to deal with or placate... (coughs) otherwise known as the Trumpsters out there, who um, have no consistency, no regard for the truth, uh, are not really conservatives. And by the way, I don't care if you're conservative if you listen to this, but at least be consistent, at least care a little bit about the truth, which uh, clearly Donald Trump does not. And I don't think most of his supporters do either. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. But let me begin by talking a little bit about this week. Uh, today, the Ziegler family officially ended any semblance of the Christmas holiday season. We m- made the mistake, and it was my mistake, one of many I make as a dad, to um, try to soften the blow. You know, for Grace at four and a half years old, the end of the holiday season is quite crushing because she has such a rough life as it is. I mean, she is well on her way to being a spoiled brat, which is one of the many reasons why I'm thrilled that we were able to have, just barely under the deadline for my wife's biology, a second kid scheduled for April. Because if that had not occurred, Grace would have been on the fast track to hell in a handbasket, I believe, because of the fact that she's an only child. And uh, she's definitely a, a lot of great qualities. I love her to death, but she's a brat. And with the best of intentions, last year, this worked fairly well. I thought, once again, on this Sunday, let's get together with her grandparents on her on her mother's side. And let's go to this um, Christmas play that the Pasadena Playhouse here in Southern California puts on every Christmas season. And I give her something to look forward to as we're putting away the Christmas tree and the Christmas decorations. And there's no more gifts. And the Rose Parade is over with. And, you know, there's really nothing to look forward to anymore until maybe Valentine's Day, and that's really kind of pushing it. And so we go to this thing, and, you know, really nothing disastrous happened. We were able to get there without any major catastrophes, but she was a pain in the butt, as she is wont to be, um, as a spoiled brat. And this show was just horrible. I mean, just, I don't know, it it was supposed to be Cinderella Christmas. And I don't know how you can screw up the Cinderella story, but the Pasadena Playhouse clearly did that. But most importantly, Grace got nothing. Uh, there, there was no benefit to it at all. Grace just basically exposed to me and her mother that she is, in fact, well on her way to being a spoiled brat. The more you do for her, uh, the, the less appreciation there is and the more she expects, and, um, and there's going to have to be some changes. So Grace is in for some big changes in her life, uh, both with regard to discipline as well as the fact that her little sister is going to be coming uh, right around the corner. The week began, as I already referenced, at the Rose Parade, which Grace was a little under the weather for and didn't really appreciate, but at least she went to and, and didn't cause a major problem. The weather wasn't all that great. It was a bit cold. In fact, this whole fall and early winter has been exceedingly cold here in Southern California and very, very rainy. You know, I, 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 am not a believer in global warming. I believe in climate change as a natural cyclical event. And, you know, we've got a bunch of rain this week where California is getting crushed in the Northern part of the state right now. And in a potentially historic storm, Yosemite Valley has been closed because of snow and rain and here we were literally less than two years ago in California, and we were in a catastrophic drought. Laws here in California were altered, restrictions on water usage, and it was all blamed on global warming, which was it's just flat out ridiculous. From a logical perspective. I mean, we've had we, we're basically a desert here. We live in the desert, we have a short rainy season inevitably, cyclically, you're going to have situations where if you miss a rainy season or two, you're going to have a drought. Well, they're never going to admit the drought's over. But for all intents and purposes, the water shortage is over. We're, we're incredibly inefficient here in California in using our water, which is the real major problem. It's not a matter of not having enough water. it's We use it very poorly in, in a very politically correct fashion here in California, but we're getting crushed with water. And what I find most amazing is not just that this catastrophic drought has been greatly dissipated, although they'll never admit that it's over. Two other things. Number one, the exact same thing has happened in Florida and Texas in the last few years. Google Florida and Texas drought global warming. Within the last five, six years, both those states had major droughts, that we're blamed on global warming that no longer exist. So does that mean that global warming no longer exists? Can we please be logical? Can we please be somewhat consistent? I guess in the age of Trump, those things no longer matter, even though Trump's a, apparently, at least last time he talked about it, who knows what it'll be tomorrow, but he's supposedly a global warming skeptic, climate change skeptic. But California is well on its way now to following Florida and Texas in having global warming-created droughts that all of a sudden disappear, but somehow that doesn't say anything about global warming. But there's no sign of global warming in Southern California. And by the way, not just, the second part of this thing is not just that the global warming thing was bullcrap with regard to the drought in California, but, you know, last year we were told El Nino was going to bring all sorts of rain. We hardly got anything. Then we were told La Nina this year, oh my gosh, it's going to kill the drought even worse than it already is. Not you know. In other words, it's going to continue the drought because La Nina means we're not going to get much rain this year. We've already gotten more this year than we got last year. So not only can't they tell us what the weather's going to be like 10, 20, 30 years from now or the climate's going to be 10, 20, 30 years from now, they can't even get it from year to year and yet we're supposed to change our entire economy based upon the concept of global warming. But anyway, back to the Rose Parade. It was cold, and I thought it was kind of a lousy parade, but the reason why I'm mentioning it is that I had promised to do something, even as symbolic and minor as it might be, because of the fact that Penn State was playing in the Rose Bowl against USC, and of course I have been embroiled way too far deeply into the, whole so-called Penn State scandal, which I don't believe was a scandal, and I don't believe even happened, having investigated it more fully than any other human being ever should have possibly done. And I knew that nobody else was going to do anything, but I thought that there, at least for symbolic purposes, needed to be somebody there that stood up for the the truth of the fact that I knew that at least a subplot of this whole Rose Bowl thing was going to be, oh, Penn State recovering from the horrendous, Jerry Sandusky scandal, which, as I've said, is the biggest myth that's ever been created by the modern media. So I had some rarely, really big plans, but they basically got squashed by a aforementioned NFL legend and Penn State alumnus uh, Franco Harris, who thought he didn't want to take anything away from the team's accomplishments. And I'm like, OK, fine, whatever. I had thought about hiring a skywriter to uh, have a message in the sky. That was a really good idea that I didn't do it. One, because Franco didn't approve, but two, because it was a super cloudy day and I would have been really pissed had I spent several thousand dollars on the skywriting that you couldn't see because it was cloudy and rainy that day. But I still wanted to do something symbolically, so I I had a a simple sign created that said Joe Paterno was innocent, exclamation point, gave the uh, URL for our website, which is framingpaterno.com. If you want more information about that case, it's meant to be figurative, not literal. It's not a conspiracy theory, but I used that almost five years ago now, and it's turned out to be more true than I ever imagined. But, um, so what I did with the sign was really more of a social experiment other than having some pictures taken and having them spread across social media and, and, and giving some people who still care about the issue, uh, a a moment of, hey, way to go, thumbs up, uh, at least somebody stood up for the truth. The social experiment was rather interesting because about two days before on New Year's Eve, I had been in one of the major hotels in Los Angeles where Penn Staters were staying in order to go to the Rose Bowl. I think it was the Marriott in uh, L.A. Live in downtown Los Angeles where I was meeting Franco Harris to do the interview with him, which we aired last week on our podcast. Anyway, a couple people had recognized me after I walked down from uh, Franco Harris's hotel room in the lobby there because there was like a couple of hundred Penn State fans with basically nothing to do. They were watching one of the college football semifinal games. And uh, somebody recognized me and wanted to thank me for what I've done. And a couple other people then were wondering, okay, what's going on here? And then they saw the sign and they asked to see the sign. And I held up the sign and and completely unplanned, people started applauding. And not just a few people, like the whole uh, assembly there of a couple hundred people. And had I really milked it, they, they probably would have continued to applaud for quite a while. And I probably should have, but I was almost embarrassed by it. And I didn't want to create a scene. But that was an interesting social experiment because, in that situation, those who were basically all in agreement that Joe Paterno had been railroaded in that whole thing were by far the majority of the crowd. So, in the majority, people felt comfortable expressing their approval and with no hesitation at all expressing their approval. So, then we flash forward to the Rose Parade. And before the parade, we didn't buy tickets. We're, you know, we're we're just on the street like a mile and a half down from where the parade is what you see on television. But before the parade starts, everyone's walking around Colorado Boulevard. So I take the sign and I just very casually walk up and down Colorado Boulevard for about a mile just to gauge reaction. And there was some negative reaction, which is just pathetic, but not unexpected. Uh, but the positive reaction was what I found most interesting because obviously a good portion, I don't know what it was, maybe 20% of the crowd there were obviously there because they were supporters of Penn State University and come into town just for the game and for the parade and they were wearing some sort of Penn State garb. And instead of overt approval of the sign, I was getting much more covert approval, like a wink, a wink. A nod, a thumbs up, a whisper, that kind of thing. Why? Well, I, I don't think it was because the the nature of the people who were responding changed much different you know, were much different than two days before. It was because of a different a- atmosphere. They knew they were not in the majority, and there was a fear of being seen as approving of something that might be seen by the majority as politically incorrect or somehow bizarrely meaning that you're defending pedophilia all sorts of all the insane things that went into that whole case and and why I found this interesting were two reasons one the psychological explanation for why people react in certain situations but two because this was a real telling explanation for how and why that quote-unquote scandal evolved the way that it did. Because those who knew the truth were afraid to speak publicly, at least in a loud and voracious manner, for fear of being condemned by the majority who were completely clueless and were just buying whatever the media told them. And I was seeing the personification of that phenomenon Right there on Colorado Boulevard as I walked up and down the street before the Rose Parade. So if you're curious, uh, you, know, you can check out my Twitter and Facebook feeds for the uh, photos of that. My my daughter Grace even was nice enough to hold up the sign at one point, uh, which her mother even allowed her to do, which surprised me. Uh, but we, we we end up going to the Rose Parade every other year, which is a, a nice tradition. And Grace has gone twice now, so hopefully she'll have some uh, fond memories of that and we'll will continue to go into the future. Now, going from what happened with me this week to what happened in the news, obviously a lot of the news this week related to Donald Trump and specifically the issue of Russia having hacked, quote-unquote, into the election. And there are a lot of elements of this that are just so bizarre, so out there, that I think we are officially, before the Trump presidency has even begun— We are desensitized to just how insane this is. And in fact, I think the insanity of it has been part of why Trump has not really suffered much apparent political consequence for it. Because I think for a lot of people, it is so out there, it's so crazy that people just don't believe it. I mean, his own supporters don't believe anything that's negative about him. I mean, even if Trump says it's true, if it's negative about him, they don't believe it. They they, they believe whatever they want to believe, his supporters. So I'm not even, even concerned about them anymore. But I think even rational people are kind of like, really? Are, are we really supposed to believe that like Trump's on the side of Russia and Russia is on the side of Trump? and And they really did try to steal the election on his behalf? I mean, that seems nuts. Well, our intelligence agencies no longer think that that was nuts. They've now made it very, very clear that that's what actually happened. And they couldn't be more more obvious, more clear about it, despite the fact that our own president-elect has unequivocally, on numerous occasions, sided with Julian Assange... Wikilinks, and Russia against our own intelligence agencies, who have unanimously and unequivocally stated that they have overwhelming evidence that this is what Russia intended to do, that they wanted Hillary Clinton to lose, they wanted Trump to win, they wanted to discredit our own election process. And they even have recordings of Russian leaders celebrating Trump's election. They also have evidence that Vladimir Putin himself approved or ordered this effort. Now, folks, one of the many elements of Trump's sanity, and there are many of them, that drive me crazy is how it has exposed the utter hypocrisy of people on the conservative side or who have been on the conservative side for many, many years. I don't even know what you call it anymore. I don't want to call it conservatism because that's not what I thought conservatism was. Now what we got is basically a cult. It's borderline Scientology. I mean, I don't know if you've been watching this uh, Lisa Remini a and E uh, special on on Scientology, but the more I watch it, and it's pretty decent stuff. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, and Donald Trump have a hell of a lot in common. Maybe that's a subject I'll get into at another date. But the reality here is the hypocrisy on our side on this entire Russian issue could not be more stark. It's and it's everywhere. If If everything was reversed, can you imagine if Donald Trump was leading in the polls throughout the entire election process that Hillary Clinton had asked for Russia to hack into the Republican Party's emails and to release them, as Trump had done, and that Hillary had ended up winning by a very small margin, in a massive upset, despite losing the popular vote by 3 million votes, and that our intelligence agencies had concluded that Russia had wanted Hillary to win, had helped manifest that result, and had celebrated it, our side, the Sean Hannity's of the world, the Rush Limbaugh's of the world, the Tucker Carlson's of the world, all of Fox News Channel, all the other media sycophants on Trump's side would be talking about nothing else. They would be going bat shit crazy, and rightfully so. Instead, our side, with the small exception of people like John McCain and Lindsey Graham, who have gotten an enormous amount of flack from the conservative side for not being conservative enough over the last 10 to 20 years. They're the ones standing up on principle. They're the ones who are actually being consistent and saying, "Wait a minute, this is wrong regardless of which side Russia lands on here. This is dangerous." And oh by the way, um 4 years ago when Romney ran, our candidate was the one telling us that Russia was our greatest geopolitical foe. And then for years after that, everyone was telling him how he had been vindicated because he was right. Huh? What? How did this happen? Not to mention we have a Secretary of State nominee, Lou Tillerson, Rex Tillerson, who um, is exceedingly pro-Putin, although supposedly he's now saying good things behind closed doors. We've got a, a national security advisor who is very, who's been nominated to be, who's very pro Putin. I I mean, not to mention all the nice things that Putin has said about Trump and vice versa. There's evidence of contact between Russian officials and the Trump campaign during the campaign. We don't even have Trump's tax returns to know whether or not he has massive financial conflicts of interest that might be the cause for him being incredibly soft on Russia. And all of this is forcing our side because it's a cult. And in a cult, it's whatever the religion says, and the leader can do no wrong. So therefore, logic, rationality, consistency, truth, they are all out the window. So now we have to pretend that Julian Assange is a good guy. After our people rightfully said he was a bad guy for years, Julian Assange is an admitted illegal hacker. He's a terrorist. He's been charged with rape. He is a pathological liar. He claimed A DNC worker who died was murdered effectively by Hillary Clinton during the campaign because of their role in the leaks. The family of that person condemned him for that. There was no evidence of that whatsoever. By the way, just before the election, Assange claimed that he had evidence that Trump was not going to be allowed to win, among other things. How'd that turn out? He lies all the time. And now Sean Hannity is like his best buddy. Sean Hannity and Sarah Palin apologized to him on Twitter this week. How did we get to this point? This is crazy. All because, and this is the nuttiest part. It's not just because uh, somehow our fearless cult leader, Donald Trump, is pro-Russia. Therefore, we must protect Russia at all costs. It's actually worse than that, or at least potentially worse than that. This is about protecting Donald Trump's ego. That's what this is really about, folks, because Trump doesn't want you or anybody else in this country to believe that Russia caused his great victory in any way, shape, or form. So in order to protect Donald Trump's incredibly fragile ego, we have to give up all of our principles on Russia, all consistency. We have to be massive hypocrites. We have to embrace really bad people like Julian Assange. All for what? Also, Donald Trump feels better about his victory because he's claiming, well, I don't know whether or not the Russians really hacked into the election, but I can tell you the intelligence agencies are telling me there's no evidence that they actually succeeded in helping me win. Well, that's, you know, it's just flat out ridiculous to say that because it's unknowable. It's unknowable. They got the result they wanted. So, in something as complex as a presidential election, there are many, many explanations, especially for an election that was as close as this one. It was, in some ways, as close as you can get when you have the greatest disparity between the popular vote and the electoral college vote in modern history of America. In fact, in the history of our current electoral process. So... There are a lot of different explanations. I happen to believe that the simplest one is James Comey. If anything, this whole Russian thing has gotten James Comey, the FBI director, off the hook. Because the the way Comey produced those two letters, when he did and the, the way in which he, he produced them, could not have worked more to the benefit of Donald Trump. And if you look at the polling, it's flat out obvious. And in fact, the second letter might have been as helpful to Trump as the first letter, because the second letter created the impression, I think, in a lot of minds of middle, especially in Wisconsin and Michigan. Ah, okay. You know, Hillary's got this thing in the bag. The polls are going in her direction. Comey gave her a clean bella of health. The, the issue is over with, but there wasn't enough time for that to really take hold. And I think it kind of set up a Brexit situation. And there were a lot of explanations for for the insanity that happened on election day. But I think that's the most easily understood, the the greatest, simplest explanation, Oxham's razor, it was Comey, stupid. But Trump doesn't want you to think that there's anything illegitimate about his great victory. It was about him and his own greatness, even though he only... Got 46% of the popular vote, which is incredibly anemic against a very pathetic candidate in Hillary Clinton. What difference at this point does it make? Well, it makes a lot of difference. To Donald Trump's ego, it does. And so, even though Russia got the result they wanted and they celebrated it, Trump wants us to believe that, no, no, it had no impact. Well, as Jake Tapper referenced on CNN today in an interview with Kellyanne Conway, Trump's campaign manager. Well, if it made no difference, if WikiLeaks made no difference, then why was Trump making such a big deal about it on the campaign trail? Which is true. Not to mention he was literally pleading. In fact, the last time he held a press conference, months ago, last time Trump held a press conference, he actually begged Russia, somewhat facetiously, but he begged Russia to hack into more emails because he was behind, and at that point he basically needed a miracle. Now, do I think it was the deciding factor? I, look, as I've already stated, I think there were a lot of potentially deciding factors, and I think Comey was by far the most underrated one. But I absolutely think that the whole WikiLeaks thing sucked up oxygen that could have gone elsewhere. I think it allowed the news media to create the impression. That the email, you know, to a lot of people, you gotta remember, to the average voted out voter out there, all they're hearing is Hillary emails, Hillary emails, Hillary emails, Hillary emails, Hillary emails, Hillary emails. And so and the the, the Trump story of the day or half day would change constantly because there were so many damn scandals involving him. And and the news media wouldn't pick one or two and just focus on them like they did with Hillary. And the WikiLeaks thing, even though there really wasn't, I, I defy anybody to tell me what the great WikiLeaks revelation was out of the John Podesta emails. I mean, I, yeah, politicians being politicians is what I saw. I saw no smoking gun. I saw nothing that was all, anywhere near as dramatic about some of, as, as some of the stuff we learned regarding Donald Trump during the campaign but it created the impression. It created enough smoke where people thought, well, there's fire, you know, she's corrupt. I just don't want to deal with this anymore. There's so much drama, you know, drain the swamp. I think it, I think the WikiLeaks thing allowed the drain the swamp mantra from Trump's side to get more traction than it would have without WikiLeaks. And we now know that drain the swamp was a bunch of bullshit. I mean, because Trump's being as swampy as anybody else, as Hillary probably would have been had she been elected based upon the way he's conducting business and his own personal conflicts of interest, his own business interests. still hasn't re- released his tax returns, who he's hiring for certain positions. Goldman Sachs is basically running the show or old, you know, old Goldman Sachs workers. It's incredibly hypocritical and very, very swampy. But the more important thing here is and this is my major issue with the entire Trump candidacy, and that is we're making a bad deal. We are giving up way more than we're going to get, and that's under the best case scenario. And we are giving up all of our principles. When I say we, the whole right wing conservative, whatever you want to call it now, wing both in the media and in the political realm. We're giving up all of our principles, being made into total hypocrites on the issue of Russia's involvement here, all to protect Donald Trump's fragile ego. And that's what this is. It's about his ego. And yet no one, including Trump, no one on Trump's side at least, wants to ask the most critical question in all of this. The most critical question is not, did Russia impact the election on his behalf? It's an interesting question. We could argue it. Like I said, I think it's unknowable. I don't know what the answer to that is. But I'll tell you what the bigger question ought to be. Why? Why does Russia want or did Russia want Trump to beat Hillary. Why does Trump appeal to Vladimir Putin so much over Hillary Clinton? Who, you know, she's hawkish for a Democrat, but, you know, you could certainly argue that against any number of people who are running on the Republican side, that Hillary would be less anti-Putin, less anti-Russia than they would be. I and mean, we're coming off a Democratic... Administration where Obama was famously soft on Russia and Putin. And so, why is Trump even more appealing to Putin and Russia than Hillary? Why doesn't anyone want to answer that question? Why doesn't anyone even want to ask it? But the sycophants in the Trump media and Sean Hannity is the absolute worst. And I mentioned this before, Hannity has gone after me on Twitter many times. Come and get me, big boy. If you got nothing better to do after you won, dude, you won. <laughs> You're living in a big house making tens of millions of dollars a year. And I just dropped my small, nationally syndicated Sunday night radio show. But if I bother you that much, boy, that's pretty telling. But Sean Hannity now being a fanboy of Julian Assange and of Russia. In fact, today. Hannity tweeted out, basically implying, well, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he meant. You know, United States and Russia were allied together in World War II. Shouldn't that mean something? Well, uh, first of all, that was um, 70 years ago. Second of all, the terms of that alliance were incredibly tenuous, we were allied with them only because they hated Germany's guts and they had that second front covered. So strategically it was basically the enemy of my enemy is my friend situation. As soon as the war ended, they fucked us over because FDR was old and tired and Churchill, I don't know, I guess was just thrilled that great Britain wasn't going to be speaking German. And so And of course, Hannity, I'm sure, has no clue about the history of it all. But that's how far now we're willing to go. Our leaders are willing to go to protect the cult leader, Donald Trump. And again, it's all because of his ego. That's what's so pathetic about it. And we're seeing this in so many different elements with regard to Trump. Every day on Twitter, every day on Twitter, Donald Trump feels like he needs to create some sort of a story, and it's almost always motivated by his ego, and it almost always has negative consequences that his own cult-like followers have no clue about. We saw it this week again with Toyota. About once a week now. He's not even president yet. Can you imagine what the impact's going to be once he's president? He'll tweet something negative about a major corporation, and their stock price will plummet. What happened this week to Toyota? By the way, does he not understand that Toyota is not an American company? Because this was about the issue of them building cars in Mexico. And he tweeted something negative about Toyota, and they at least temporarily lost over a billion dollars, I think it was, in market cap. Now, they recovered a lot of that. But this has an impact Sometimes, by the way, it has impacts that no one ever knows about or are never seen. Like, for instance, and this is the theoretical, right? Somebody somewhere cashed out a retirement fund on the day that Donald Trump did that to Toyota, where they had a significant portion of Toyota. Guess what happened to that person? I don't know how many of those people existed, but I guarantee you there's somebody out there that was in that boat, probably not a super rich person, who ended up getting screwed because Donald Trump decided he wanted some attention and he was going to s- screw with Toyota via his Twitter feed. Now, I know his fans love this stuff because he's sticking in the eye of the big evil corporations. And sometimes, on a couple of these situations, he's gotten what appear to be, in the short run, good results. But again, it's going back to the same problem I always have with Trump. It's a bad deal. It's very, very, very small, short-term gratification. Gee, isn't it cool to save a couple of hundred jobs in Indiana with carrier air conditioning? Or isn't it cool to maybe get a car company to commit to continuing to build a car in Kentucky or wherever? The reality is that whatever small, tiny little victories there are, you're paying the price of a massive, massively dangerous precedent that has been set. Not to mention the the other consequences I mentioned, like people who lost money in the stock market that day, who may have gotten screwed because they were forced to sell for whatever reason on that day before the, the market eventually comes back, hopefully. But it's like, it's like drug use. That's what Trump is, basically. Interesting, by the way, I think that one of the post-election studies indicated that drug users were far more likely to vote for Trump than to vote for Hillary Clinton because Trump is like a drug, Short-term gratification, long-term destruction, long-term danger because of the precedent, because you cannot continue to do those things without massive consequences. And at the center of it is Trump's own insecurity and ego because these things are almost always provoked. In fact, every single time so far they've been able to pinpoint and said, well, you know, there was this news story that occurred a half hour or an hour or two hours before his tweet that clearly provoked Trump into doing what he did. And Trump doesn't give a damn about the consequences of his actions. All he wants is his followers to cheer him because he stuck it to the big evil corporation for 15 minutes or a half an hour the consequences be damned because they don't know the consequences. They don't care about the consequences. It doesn't matter to them. Similarly, another tweet storm. The president-elect of the United States of America, less than two weeks from being inaugurated now, chose this week to spend his morning attacking Arnold Schwarzenegger. Why Arnold Schwarzenegger? Because Arnold Schwarzenegger took over the NBC show The Apprentice, which used to be hosted by Donald Trump. What was Arnold Schwarzenegger's great crime? The premiere of the new version of The Apprentice did not do, according to Donald Trump, nearly as well in the ratings as Donald Trump's version of The Apprentice. Now, I didn't take a look at the numbers. I'm presuming Trump's telling the truth, but that's always dangerous because, frankly, I don't know why anyone believes anything Donald Trump says because he's a pathological liar. But let's presume that that's true. Uh, First of all, so what? You're the president-elect of the United States of America, and you're so insecure that you need to publicly go after Arnold Schwarzenegger because for one night the ratings weren't as good on NBC. Making this even more bizarre is the fact that Donald Trump is still technically the executive producer of The Apprentice. So in theory, if he cared about anybody else but himself, or even frankly if he did care about himself, he should be rooting for the show. Helping the show. But no, 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 no. His ego is so big, so needy, his insecurities so great that any opportunity he can to show that he is better than somebody else, he cannot restrain himself. Now, in isolation, who gives a damn? It doesn't really matter, other than it's unbecoming of the president elect of the United States of America. That used to mean something. It no longer does in the Trump era. But my concern, as it always is with Trump, is this is an example of what's going to come back and haunt us again in some other realm. His lack of control, his motivation being entirely based in ego and self-gratification and his own insecurities they are going to be major pressure-filled decisions. What's going to happen in a crisis, for God's sake? And that Twitter feed, which apparently is not going to be shut down, I mean, that is a big deal because the news media treats that as if he has gone on television and made an announcement, a presidential announcement. They're like presidential decrees once he's ele- he's officially inaugurated. Which gives them even more power than they already has they already have as president-elect. Which means, in all likelihood, their impact on, for instance, on the stock market are gonna be greater than they already are. And that only is going to embolden him more, not less. And nobody close to him is gonna say, stop it. Nobody. Because if you do that and Trump doesn't agree, guess what? you're kicked out of the kingdom. You no longer have access to the king. And nobody wants to do that. Trump wants sycophants around. He wants yes men. And you know what's most amazing to me about the Schwarzenegger Twitter feud this week is that Donald Trump and Arnold Schwarzenegger are basically the same people. And Arnold Schwarzenegger is a big part of the reason that I could never get on the Trump train. Living here in California, it was obvious, obvious having lived through Arnold Schwarzenegger's governorship, that Trump was going to follow the same model. Obviously, Schwarzenegger got in on big talk, big celebrity, big media coverage, he was going to blow up the boxes, change the way Sacramento works, change the way the state works. He was a action hero who was afraid of nothing. Well, guess what happened? He got into office. He tried that out for a couple of months, lost in a, an election where he had a couple of propositions on the ballot. And all of a sudden the pit bull turned into a pussycat. And he reverted back to his natural instincts, which is love me, love me, love me. He's got a very liberal wife, Maria Shriver, much like Trump has a very liberal daughter. Ivanka might as well be his wife for all intents and purposes. She's essentially going to be first lady. So Ivanka is basically the same as Maria Shriver. And as soon as he hit that wall, Schwarzenegger turned into a Democrat And the Republican Party has been obliterated in California ever since. Now, there are a lot of other reasons why the Republican Party in California is completely obliterated. But Schwarzenegger was the last chance to save it. And it has always been my view that from a personality standpoint, that Trump was actually more likely to turn out like Schwarzenegger than Schwarzenegger was. Because Schwarzenegger at least had a semblance of conservative principle in his background. If you listen to Schwarzenegger throughout his career, he didn't become a quote-unquote Republican 15 minutes before he ran for governor. He actually spoken extensively and somewhat eloquently about some conservative ideals. He was never a right-wing conservative guy, but you could never get elected in modern California that way anyway. But he was absolutely, in his verbiage, a Republican. Trump never was. Trump was always a liberal Democrat, except on some very minor issues. And so, what concerns me most about Trump politically is that if he hits the same wall, not the wall that Mexico is not going to pay for on the southern border, but the figurative wall, if he hits that wall and he reverts back to his natural instincts and he has all this leverage over the Republican Party, he's going to go left because that's what's going to get him loved. There's only two things to get him lo- that he loved. His base will love him on the populist agenda, which is not conservative, not Republican, and the media will love him if he does liberal things. And his daughter will love him if he does liberal things, not to mention also her husband, who's going to be a major White House advisor. So that's where we're headed with Trump. It's the Schwarzenegger absolutely created, I think, the script for what is likely to happen with Trump. Now, how exactly it's going to turn out, nobody knows. Circumstances will dictate that. But that's what I found so funny about the Trump-Schwarzenegger feud this week. They are very similar personalities, and Trump is very likely to follow the same path. He, got the, he, he followed the same path to election under bizarre circumstances, claiming to re, be a Republican, and then he turns into a Democrat once he's in office. This was one of the many reasons why I was so confused that my old radio co-host, Leah Brandon, jumped on the Trump train so dramatically. Because she was here in California with me at KFI in Los Angeles as I predicted exactly how the Schwarzenegger governorship would go, and every day we saw it, and every day we saw the consequences. And yet even someone like Leah jumped on the Trump train because it's a cult. That's what it is. It's not based in logic. It's not based in truth. It's not based in consistency. It requires massive hypocrisy. It requires leaving all rationality at the door and basically putting all your eggs in the basket of hope. Hope. And look, I know I'm bashing Trump a lot. I expect him to do some things that are much better than what Hillary Clinton would do. But are they going to be worth it in the totality and in the long run? And I have my great doubts. And that's even under the best case scenario where there's no massive catastrophes, no major crises, no 9-11s, no market crashes, anything like that. By the way, one of the elements that has me most concerned from a specific issue about Trump is what's going to happen with the Supreme Court and the replacement of Antonin Scalia. And I wrote a fairly extensive column this week for Mediaite, which you can find at freespeechbroadcasting.com, which deals with that issue, which really came to a head for the first time this week as Chuck Schumer, the Democratic minority leader in the Senate, effectively promised on MSNBC that he would do everything he could to stop Trump from getting anyone approved to the U.S. Supreme Court, while Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader from Kentucky, he countered by saying, I found this laughable, that the American people would never, never allow the Democrats to, and I'm paraphrasing, they would never allow the Democrats to delay Trump's appointee from being approved or preventing Trump from getting whoever he wanted to be the next Supreme Court justice so that we would finally go back to nine since we've been in eight justices ever since the death of Scalia. And in the column, I write that that's delusional because outrage is over, folks there is no outrage. We have learned, especially on substantive issues, the American people don't care about crap. They don't care about anything. They certainly don't care all that much about whether or not the U.S. Supreme Court has eight members or nine members. It's had eight members for almost a year now, and nothing in our lives changed. There's been no negative consequence to that. And that was done because of Republican obstructionism, which, by the way, I approved of (laughs) back when I thought we we had at least a shot at getting a true Republican president. The idea that we put all of our eggs in giving Trump the ability to make that choice is bizarre to me and very troubling, but that's the reality of it. We are where we are, and I, I guess I'd rather have Trump choose it than Hillary, only because Trump does have to answer to Republicans and Hillary does not. But I am of the belief that if Chuck Schumer and the Democrats play their cards right and have any luck at all, my prediction is that in the end, one of two things will likely happen. Either we will remain at eight justices up until the midterm elections, and I think that's kind of a long shot, but that's at least a theoretically possible scenario, because let's face it, Republicans gave up the moral high ground. They already obstructed even a hearing for Garland, Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, for almost a year. So they can't now say that somehow the country is in peril because we only have eight justices. And the media doesn't care about this issue. The public doesn't, by and large, care that much about it. And once the midterms start, both parties will actually have an incentive to use it as a political wedge. So that's possibility number one. The more likely scenario, here's what I think will happen. I think Trump will nominate someone from his list of 20 or 21 that are approved conservatives. Schumer will fill a filibuster the fuck out of that person. The media will find something about them, and it's not going to be difficult based upon the rules that they've created, that make them illegitimate, whether it's on the issue of abortion, racism somehow, something. They'll find something. And by the way, I wouldn't even put it past Trump to do this on purpose, to nominate someone on the list who already has a poison pill within their nomination. Because he needs to nominate somebody from the list. Otherwise, he loses all credibility among the Republican the old guard Republican base and conservatives. And even even Rush Limbaugh, maybe not Sean Hannity, but even Rush Limbaugh would have a tough time defending him if he doesn't nominate someone from the approved list. But someone from the approved list gets treated basically like Garland by the Democrats. Although the Democrats aren't in charge, so they they won't have the full ability to completely ice this person like Garland, but they fight this. They fight the, it with a filibuster for a long enough period of time to where eventually Trump gets tired of it. And Trump's M.O. is not to fight. He'll claim he'll fight, but he doesn't. I think Trump will eventually cave. I think Trump will negotiate as he always does, much like he did with the Trump University lawsuit, where he ended up settling for $25 million after saying he would never, ever, ever, ever settle. And I think they come up with another name that's, that's a, that Schumer is okay with, that McConnell is begrudgingly okay with, who's not on the list, and who we really have no idea about for several years. And think about that, folks. That's the most important part of why a cave on a Supreme Court justice is so easy for Trump while going off the list will have some repercussions for him, he's going to be able to claim victory like he always does. Claim victory. Doesn't matter how madly you get your ass kicked, just claim victory and your cult followers will believe you. And with regard to a Supreme Court justice, this is particularly easy because no one knows how good or bad a Supreme Court justice choice is For years, it takes at least a couple of years before you have a really good idea. Was this person really a conservative or are they liberal? And the the Bushes got burned a couple of times on Supreme Court justice picks that they thought were conservative. I've I've always thought if the Bushes couldn't pull this off, how in the world is Donald Trump going to pick a hardcore conservative? Get him through the U.S. Senate. Get him approved. I, I just find that hard to believe. Now, he's he's surprised me before. And I hope this is one of the areas where I really hope I'm wrong. I desperately hope I'm wrong. I would love for a true constitutional conservative to replace Anton Scalia. And if that happens, you know what? That would pay for a lot of Trump mistakes that are inevitable. But I just think there's a very good scenario. It's not 100%. I don't know what percentage it would be, but I think it's over 50% that in the end, someone not on the list ends up being approved as the next Supreme Court justice to replace Antonin Scalia. All right. So, but we'll see. I mean, you know, obviously this is going to be a subject that will be talked about uh, for weeks and months to come. Now, if you, want, if you want more details on my opinion on that, go to freespeechbroadcasting.com and check out my column. And also make sure you check out our number two of the podcast, which is coming up. But before you do that, do yourself a favor. If you sleep, and I know most of you do, and, I use, and you use sheets when you sleep, which I know most of you do, do yourself a favor and listen to this really important message.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. performance fabric huh maybe we should oh i don't know try them out again (laughs) (laughs) comfort and performance for better sleep that's sheiks s-h-e-e-x sheiks try sheiks for 30 nights risk-free go to sleepcoolnow.com use promo code 1212 and get 40 dollars off any sheet set that's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212 sleepcoolnow.com 1212